Lord, that is so true that your way is so much better than ours, Lord. Of all the silly ways that we've tried to save ourselves in the past and all the silly ways that we still run to in the present trying to save ourselves, Lord. Your way through Jesus, who's completely and utterly saved us through his work, Lord, is so much better because it's sure, it's certain, we can rest in it. It illuminates our heart to your beauty and love for us, and those are the things that change us from the inside out, Lord. So I pray as we study this passage in particular, uh, Lord, that we would see that, that the beauty and the light of Christ and the face of Jesus, contrasting that to all the silly ways that we seek salvation, would show us how beautiful you are and that seeing that beauty, uh, we would be forever changed. And so we pray that your spirit would illuminate us and guide us as we study your word. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are a uh, second sermon in Jonah. We're going to do a little bit of an overlap uh, from last week. We're going to start at verse 4 so that we can, uh, I hope to hope to pull out that contrast between all the silly ways that we seek to save ourselves and how much different and how much better Jesus really is. And that's what I hope we'll walk away from today. And we see that God, uh, not us, God is the true missionary on his ways are so beautiful that when we see them clearly, uh, you can't walk away from it without being changed. So if you would please stand, if you're able, uh, as we read from God's inerrant word. This is Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 4 through 16. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. And then they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, the lot fell on Jonah, and then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. 
So they picked Jonah up and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. One of our, one of the, like this, one of the pillars of our ministry, of our philosophy of ministry, is the idea that uh, is the idea that God uh, that that Christianity is more beautiful than any any of the opposing religious viewpoints in the world, and we try to present uh, Jesus and God as as beautiful, and I mean not in a visual sense because we can't see God, but in a, in, in in you know in the sense that. Uh, not, not just things that are seen can be beautiful, but the other things can be beautiful as well. Actions can be beautiful, ideas can be beautiful, and so in that vein, we try to present Jesus uh, as more beautiful than all the opposing opinions. And in, in, the, in the debate about what it is that makes things truly beautiful, if you get into that kind of stuff, there's whole books like written about this. How do we actually even know what's truly beautiful and not? Is it just the eye of the beholder? Uh, is it, you know, who knows, right? It's, just, it's an abstract quality. But one of the things that's always stood out to me in that, in that debate is, is that true beauty, like, dis- and displayed in great art or other things, true beauty, when you come in contact with true beauty, it leaves this indelible mark on you that kind of changes you a little bit forever. You walk away from that experience or from seeing that or experiencing that changed a little bit. And maybe it's because uh, that the beauty that that thing represents is a, is, a, is a pale representation of the character of God and you can't ever come into contact with the true character of God without it changing you. And so I've always really liked that understanding of true beauty uh, is something that, that marks you and changes you. And the gospel is like that. That's why we have that as a pillar in our ministry. When I first, my first introduction to Christianity, I grew up Roman Catholic and I, I didn't really pay attention, but all, what I got away from it was that whenever I fell into sin, I was going to hell. And then uh, later on, when I came back to faith again later in life, I was being eva- evangelized in, uh, in, in another tradition of Christianity. Uh, and every time I fell into sin, I was convinced that I'd lost my salvation. I was going to hell. And it was terrifying. I walked away from that experience knowing two things were true in my heart. I I knew pretty much that Christianity was true, and I also knew that I couldn't do it. That every time that I would mess up, I had lost it. And I thought, I'm just, I'm going to hell. There's no way to stop it. It was terrifying. And what was so terrible about that, what was so tragic about that, was that I'd been given this version of Christianity that really wasn't much different than the, uh, than, than, than the other, other religious ideals out in the world. The names were different. I called, you know, God Jesus. The vocabulary was the same as Christianity, but all, so many of the definitions were different that I was in a, a, just a state of terror and suspense and uncertainty. Uh, and when, against that backdrop, when I finally understood, or maybe it's better to say when God, 
finally had illuminated my heart to the truth of the gospel. The contrast of that was so stunningly different than what I'd believed before that it just necessarily changed me forever from that moment forward. And I think that's the big idea of this passage. It's really the big story of Jonah. The story of Jonah is not ultimately about Jonah. It's not about being a missionary or being an evangelist or failing that call or heeding that call. Ultimately, it's about the fact that God is the missionary, that God is the evangelist, and he is presenting to the world through his chosen vessels and the means that he does that, he is presenting to the world a picture of himself that in contrast to the fearful and uncertain uh, and anxious religious thoughts that surround us, it is so remarkably different and beautiful that when you see it or when God opens your mind to it, it changes you forever. And that's the big idea, the big story of Jonah and certainly... The big part, uh, the big theme in this part of the book. Jonah lived in a world, as do we, where the the ideas of of God are uncertain, uh, and there's a lot of fear, uh, and there's a ship full of sailors that are about to see the light of Jesus and be forever changed. And so the big idea of this passage is that in the uncertain sea of fear, only the light of Christ has the power to change us. In the uncertain sea of fear, only the power, only the light of Christ has the power to change us. So let's look at that one part at a time. In the uncertain sea of fear. We are, me and my kids, we read every night before we go to bed. I read them stories. You've all been subjected to this as we've moved through uh, Harry Potter series with the Harry Potter illustrations. Then we went into Lord of the Rings and went into Narnia. We are now in the middle of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, which is not necessarily an underlying theme of Christianity in the book. However, what the book does is it portrays a surprisingly accurate view of what the gods were like in the ancient world. The story centers on Percy Jackson, who is a half-blood. He's the son of Poseidon, Uh, and and a mortal woman. And the story kind of revolves around all these half-blood kids were the the gods who are capricious and vindictive uh, and uncertain and uncaring and aloof and distant uh, and angry and at war with one another, kind of like travel around the world and have affairs with different women and just leave kids in in their wake, who then they disregard, won't claim as their own, won't help, and just leave them to the fate of all the monsters that are trying to hunt them down and kill them on a daily basis. And the picture it shows is of what the gods in the ancient world were really like. That's what they were like. The Greek gods, the pantheon, the Assyrian gods, all the gods of the ancient world were really like that. They were capricious. They were uncaring. They were um, constantly at war with one another. They were selfish, constantly doing things for their own personal gain. And that is what people had. I mean, think about that. I mean, universally, that was the idea of what gods were like, and that's what people had to work with. And so it was uncertain. It was confusing. It was desperate. Your best hope, especially in a time of crisis, 
was that maybe one of the gods would take notice of you, and if he did take notice of you, maybe he would kill you, maybe he would ignore you, and maybe, just maybe, he would help. And that's, that's the best it got if you were a worshiper. And that's what's happening here. Listen, look what happens. The crew, each man calls out to his own God in the midst of the storm. The storm comes up, comes out of nowhere. They're probably still within sight of land. They like clue into this is probably a supernatural event. Uh, and each man, these, these are sailors, right? Probably not the most religious people in the world even to this day. However, in a time of crisis, when they needed to think about God, each man had been raised with an idea or a national God. Each man actually had three gods, a national God, a city God, a personal God. And each man in that desperate hour was crying out to his own individual God. Why? Because they needed a spread. And they needed that spread to be as big as possible. They were rolling dice, playing odds, and what they needed more than anything was to get attention. Just one of them who maybe might turn their fortunes around. And that's why the captain comes to Jonah, and he says, what are you doing? Oh, you sleep? How could you be sleeping right now? Don't you know we're against the odds? You've got a God. You're a foreigner. Get up there and get in there with us and call on your God. That extends our odds a little bit. Maybe your God will give us a thought so that we won't perish. Maybe you'll have pity on us. And that was the vibe of the ship in midst of crisis, uncertainty, fear, anxiety, completely at the mercy of these capricious, unreliable, selfish gods. And all they could do was try to spread it out and call upon as many gods as they could think of, hopefully not treading on the... Uh, and, you know, treading on the toes of some God doing one thing or another God doing the other thing, and maybe, just maybe, they might be able to hit one of the gods who would take pity on them. And as the knowledge of God fades in the Western world more and more, that's the view of God that's taking its place. Very few atheists in the world, very few real atheists, you have to be incredibly smart to fool yourself into believing that there's no God at all. Uh, most people kind of have this. They, have, they don't really think God, about God a lot, um, you know, until they have to in times of real crisis. I mean, real crisis, not the low-level anxiety of everyday life. We're perfectly able to deal with that with money and entertainment. I mean like real crisis, like bad visit to the doctor, bad diagnosis, crisis of health, crisis of life, crisis of finances, not sure how you're going to make it to the next day, Destru and destruction of important relationship, real crises of life, and then, and then, the, you know, one of the, one of the pillars of DIY pop religion comes into play. And that's the sinner's prayer. I don't mean, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I accept you into my heart. I mean the real sinner's prayer. Oh, God, get me out of this one. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do anything. Please just get me out of this one, and I promise to do better, or I promise to do this, manipulating, trying to use prayer as a magic trick just to get the attention of God so that in the off chance that he might, if he's there, have mercy on us, we can get some results. And look, 
I've said that, you know, talked about, you know, the real sinner's prayer and sermons before and like, ha ha, get a laugh out of it because I told like, you know, my stories of like how often I said that prayer, how it's just my, you know, is sometimes still is my go-to and we think, ha, that's funny. But you know what I want to, I want to think about how sad that is really. It's not funny. It's terrible. It's like a reflection of the terrible reality of people who don't know Jesus, people who are surrounding us, our loved ones, our friends. That's kind of all they've got outside of understanding what the gospel is. That's it. That's sad. It should be like, it should be breaking our hearts. It's not just sad. Side note, the crazy part is... Here's the crazy, the crazy part of all that. And Charlie alluded to this in the law reading, is that that is oftentimes still our go-to as Christians, even when we know the gospel. Even when we know the gospel, when crisis hits, sometimes our first reaction is to run back to those idols. Uncertain, capricious, fearful, no certainty in it whatsoever, and at the, not having the power to save us from what where experiences are giving us any help whatsoever. That's, that's the crazy part of it. And so what do we do? I mean, what do we do as Christians when, when we run into that? What, do, what are people to do in the world, friends who don't know Christ, who that's all they have? How are they ever going to know anything different? How would they ever know anything different than that unless God would send a messenger or someone to them, right? And that's what we hope for Jonah, the hero, to come in and save the day, except here we have Jonah, the unwilling anti-hero, the bad prophet. And what is he doing to save the day? (laughs) He's asleep in the bowels of the vessel. It's part two. In the uncertain sea of fear, only the light of Christ. We had this great conversation at our community group on Friday night about like sharing the gospel and when we should, when we shouldn't. And I talked about the difference between this, the term I called red lighting uh, and, and, and really, and, and contra to red lighting, really uh, like some of the most amazing gospel conversations I've ever had. So red lighting means this, in drag racing, there's a there's a there's lights that, that like a stoplight and it goes red and then green and when the green light hits you hit the gas and you go if it's red and you hit the gas and you go before it's time or and it, you lose no matter how fast you are and so there's been I, I just kind of developed that term of red lighting is 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 my description for gospel conversations that I get into that I force because I feel like an, a sense of obligation or I feel like I, I need to be the hero and step into this situation and bring the gospel. Uh, I, you know, at our old church, there's this guy, we used to call him the sniper <laughs> because we couldn't bring anybody to church because within like 10 minutes, the guy had, the, had him cornered and was trying to get him to say the sinner's prayer, right? So we called him the sniper. Uh, and it's funny, but I'm like, I'm guilty of that too. There's been times in my life when I think like, oh, 
I'm, you know, I'm going to be the hero for God and step into this and, and, and share the gospel, even though there's, it's just so awkward and forced. And at the end of that, usually, I get the feeling that I've just distanced people from God more than anything else. You know, God uses that, you know, for sure. But contrast that to so, so many stories on, that I could tell about times when I had no desire to preach the gospel. All I wanted to do was get out of there. And they start asking questions, and they just wanted to go home. And the questions after question after question, before you know it, it's five hours later, and they want to come to church with you. And you're like, gosh, I just wanted to go home, God. <laughs> What's it, what am I trying to say? Oftentimes, some of the most beautiful and productive gospel conversations happen when I least expect it, when I'm not trying to do it, when God, in his timing, just sets it up and lays it out, and it happens. And sometimes, I'll, after the fact, I'll be like, whoa, wait a minute, what just happened? It'll be so, so obviously God working in and through the vessel. And there's an important principle in that. The principle is that God is the one doing the work. Yes, we should be looking for opportunities to share the gospel. We shouldn't just be waiting for random accidents to happen. We should be thinking about it and looking for it. But we are not, ultimately, if God is the missionary, God is doing the work. God is like using us as vessels in his time and place to bring light and the world to, to people. And so the story of Jonah is not the story of Jonah the missionary. Jonah's like the anti-missionary. He's the anti-hero. Uh, it's not, the big takeaway from Jonah is not be a better evangelist, work harder at mission, although those things are important. The big takeaway and the big story of Jonah is that God is so merciful and so powerful and so sovereign that he is bringing his word to his people. It's happening. And oftentimes, we will be privileged with being that vessel, but it's God's choice. It's God's work. And that's what we see here. God uses Jonah, the unwilling anti-hero, to show these Gentiles a picture of the beauty of the light of Christ. And also, as a side benefit, this passage, Jonah really shows us how the Bible works, how the Old Testament works. It's giving us pictures. Jesus said in Luke 24 that all the scriptures, all the Old Testament is talking about me. It's all stories and pictures that speak of truth about me, that speak about the work that I will do, this, what I will do to accomplish salvation. And that's what we see in this more than anything. It's a picture of Jesus. Look what happens. Well, we don't know. At this point, right, Jonah's sleeping. The guy, the captain wakes him up. Nobody, there's all kind of arguments back and forth about what Jonah's mindset is at this point in the story. Is he, uh, is he, is, does he have a death wish? Does he hate the Ninevites so much that he'd rather be thrown off the vessel and die than bring them the message of salvation? Or is he, has he come to terms with God's will and God's sovereignty and God's call on his life and he's now voluntarily willing to sacrifice himself uh, for the sailors, for these pagans whom he once hated. Nobody really knows. We don't have a lot of insight in the text. I'd like to think 
Jonah came to grips with the fact that being in the center of God's will was the safest place to possibly be, even if it meant over the rail of the ship. That the God who created the storm could save him through it, and that it was primary mission and focus should be how, uh, how can I save these people? But we don't know for sure. What we do know, what we do know is that the sailors are in abject fear and terror, and they come to Jonah and they say, basically, what must we do to be saved? And Jonah says, interestingly, first he says, you must lift me up. It was kind of an unnecessary verb in the flow of the narrative. And that word, lift up, is almost never used to lift a person up. It's almost always used to lift up sin away from the people of God. And so he's called to be lifted up and hurled into the sea. In the ancient world, the sea was symbolic of death. And the people, the Gentiles, had to be the ones to do it. And so what do the sailors do? They say, no, that can't be it. And they dig in even harder. (laughs) They're like, no, that can't be it. They double down on their efforts to save themselves. And that ultimately fails. And then when they have no recourse left, they cry out to God and they say, ultimately, they say, we trust your word. And they throw Jonah over the side and the storm is immediately stilled. Can you imagine how that would have freaked them out? I mean, you can't help but think about the story from Mark 4. Jesus is asleep in the boat. He gets up, and in his power and sovereignty, he stops the waves, and the, and the narrative says, it's not like the sea like slowly like sloshed to a peaceful state. It just went, and immediately there was peace. They saw the sovereignty and power of God in that moment, as Jonah, the servant of God, the messenger of God, the prophet of God, willingly sacrificed himself and carried the sin over the side and into death to save the sailors. That's the picture. You know, if we have any doubt as to what the main theme of Jonah is, Jesus tells us straight up. The Jews are wanting a sign from him, and he says to an evil and adulterous generation, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And what is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is that the idols, your idols, they can't save you. They don't have the power to be God. No matter how hard you row, you're not going to make it to shore. (laughs) And that the astonishing truth about God is that he, Jesus, willingly dies for us. He does the work. He makes the sacrifice. He takes the sin away from us. There's no need for rituals or, you know, rituals of expiation or self-atonement or magic or sacrifice or anything. It's just trusting in that word of God that Jesus takes away the sins of the world And that you can be certain of that truth. He's not capricious. He's not selfish. He's not vindictive. He is going literally overboard 
to show us a picture of his mercy and grace and love. And that if we cry out to him, he will hear and he will save. It's guaranteed. That's the sign of Jonah. You know, and it's not just for unbelievers. It's for us too. When we get all crazy in the crisis of life and we run back to the idols to save us, even though we know better, we come here on Sunday and God reminds us, no, that's not it. Those things can't save you. I know you rode really hard all week. You didn't get anywhere near shore. That's all right. Because the God of the Bible, the God of the gospel is a God who's died for his people, who has carried away our sin, who has saved us, and it's certain and sure, and we can rest in that. That's why we come every week, because we need to. And when people come face to face with that kind of light, changes them. This third part. In the uncertain sea of fear, only the light of Christ has the power to change us. You know, when I'm reading Lord of the Rings with my kids or Narnia, the Christian themes are really evident and we talk about them, we stop and we say, Let's talk about this. How is this, you know, how does this, what does this remind you of? And my kids will be like, that's like Jesus. He does this. I'm like, high five. When you're reading Percy Jackson, the Christian themes aren't always so evident, but the anti-hero themes are there. The contrast is there. And so the gods will do just some awful thing in the book and we'll stop and I'll say, what do you think about that? What do you think about gods like that? And they'll be like, they're awful. They're terrible. I can't, I can't believe he would do that to his own kids. And then I will say, now, what do you know, you know, from, from what do you know about Jesus? How, how is Jesus different than that? And what does it make you, how do you think about Jesus when you think about those kind of gods? And she's, they're like, it's amazing. I can't, Jesus is so good. And he loves us so much. And I'm so, I'm so sure that he loves us. And, I, and I, I know that he's saved us. And we have conversations like that. And those, those conversations that I have with my kids like that, what do you think those gods are like? Versus, what do you know about Jesus? Those conversations are like mini conversations of what happened in the ancient world in the first couple centuries of Christianity. The people, all they had like many people today that we know, all they had was that uncertain, fearful representation of God who might kill you, he might ignore you, he might not care, he might use you for some malicious end for his own gain, and that's what people worship. And when Christianity came along, the gospel, I mean the real gospel, Not the version of Christianity that tell that's so similar to the other religions of the world that makes you believe that, that you must earn God's favor in some way, shape, or form for him to accept you, but the real gospel that says that Jesus has done this for us. Jesus has died for us. He has taken away your sin. You are saved. You do belong to God. And all you have, the, only, the only thing you do is just 
receive that like a gift. That idea was so crazy and so beautiful and so remarkably different than what they had, the church became, the church blew up. The church blew up. They were centered on the gospel. Now, look what happens to the sailors, right? When God sheds the light of Christ upon them in this crisis. In verse 14, they say, O Lord, at the end, the last thing they say is, you have done as it pleases you. And that's an important verse. There's only three other places in the Bible where it talks about God does doing all he pleases. One of them is Psalm, or one of them is Isaiah 46 that Charlie read as the law today. Another one is Psalm 115, Psalm 135, and the overlapping themes of all of those passages. There's two overlapping themes that all those passages share. And one of them is the futility of worshiping idols, and two is God's rule over all the earth. And so I think the Holy Spirit is implanting that idea in Jonah to tell us that that's the realization that was dawning on these sailors, the futility of worshiping these idols and the fact that Yahweh was truly the God of all the earth. Jonah, even in his recitation, he switches, switches the, normal, uh, the normal way of saying it to say that God is the land of the God is the God of the sea and the land, instead of saying God who created land and sea, God who created sea and land as a way of explaining to them that God is in control and sovereign over all creation, including the sea that we're in the middle of. And so there's that. Holy Spirit kind of implants that idea and enshrines it here for us to discover. But maybe, you know, these are these are polytheists, right? All the time they would just they would accept another God. That was no big deal in the Roman world to take one more God onto yourself, you know, especially if you needed a good spread, to, you know, to get, you know, increase your odds. However, you know, we see other things happening. We see that the great fear that they feared, the exceeding fear that the sailors had in the sea after the storm is quelled, it says the same words, now they have an exceeding fear of the Lord, which is kind of like an ancient way of saying trust and belief and, and awe and reverence of God as the true God. And then we see they offer a sacrifice. Certainly they didn't do this on the ship. They just tossed everything off the side. They didn't have live animals on the ship, which means they probably, when they got back to port, they made it a point to collectively go together and find a shrine of Yahweh somewhere in Joppa or in Israel or in Judah, maybe even Jerusalem itself, to offer a sacrifice to this God who had saved them. And they made vows there, which almost certainly means they promised to continue to come and make those vows. Now, does that mean they were converted? Tim Keller says yes. John Calvin says no. But what everybody does say is this. The beauty of what they saw in Christ left such an indelible mark upon them. They, walked, they could not walk away from that without being changed. And so at the end of the book, it doesn't tell us. It doesn't say one way for sure 
whether these sailors were converted to be monotheistic worshipers of Yahweh instead, it really just leaves us with the question. It drops it into your lap, and it asks you to ask the question of yourself. Which one of these ideals of God is more beautiful, is more worthy of my belief and trust? Is it the the capricious and vindictive and gods at war with each other who may kill me just as well as help me, but probably will ignore me and not be there when I need them in time of trouble? Or is a more beautiful understanding of God the one in the Bible? That a God who loves us so much that he, instead of a God who commands you to die for him, he's the only God in history who dies for his people. And that that Death takes away our sins, makes us right with him, and that all is required of us is that we trust in him and that we believe that to be true and we receive that gift. Which one of those is a more beautiful view of God? Well, we say the Christian view is. And that's why, in conclusion, man, that's why it's so important for us to be preaching the gospel and not fall into patterns of preaching law, whether it's to the culture or to ourselves. It's so important for us to hold up that picture of God in Jesus in the gospel because only that is beautiful enough. Only that is truly beautiful. And that is what God uses to change hearts for those outside the church and for those of us inside the church as well. We need to continue to come back and see Jesus in the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are truly beautiful in all of your ways. Lord, we repent. We call, we call upon you to remember your promise to us and forgive us for all the ways and all the times that we abandon what we know about you and run after the idols that we think are going to save us when they never do. And Lord, we pray, I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would help us to continue to revisit the sweetness of the gospel in our everyday lives. We pray that you would, in your mercy, continue to illuminate your minds, our minds, to the beauty of Jesus so that we would be so overwhelmed with his beauty and so overwhelmed with love for you that it would just be a natural thing for us to speak about you in compelling ways in the world. Um, and ultimately, Lord, we pray that we would just worship you and glorify you as we ought to because of what you've done for us in Jesus. We pray this in his perfect name. Amen.